We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. What does it mean to know someone? I, I think in our, in our social media age, we've, we've forgotten you know, we may have 563 Facebook friends, or we may have 200 Twitter or Instagram followers, and, and we think, you know, we know all of these people, when in reality, the people that we actually know, that we have a relationship with, that we are present with on a day-to-day basis, or at least that we've had a conversation with in the last, like, month, Um, Those are the kinds of people that we know, and that number is much, much smaller than the amount of Facebook friends we have, or Twitter followers, or if you use Instagram, unlike me, because I can't figure out what the obsession is with taking photos all the time. But um, if, if, if that's what it means to know someone, then, then what the Bible is talking about when it talks about knowledge, particularly knowledge of God, is something entirely different. And so we've been in a series called Brought Together in the book of Ephesians, and this is our third week. In the, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a couple of key ideas, one being identity, and that what God is doing is he's reconciling us to himself, and that when he does that, we have a new identity in Christ. And so we've been made saints, or those who have been set apart for God and his purposes by his grace, and that what we need most in life is God's grace and the peace that comes from that grace. And then the second week, we looked last week at at spiritual blessings that God has provided for us in Christ, and we looked at what it means to be chosen by God and adopted as his sons, and and loved by him, and redeemed, and forgiven. And so we looked at what it means to have spiritual blessings that are contrasted with earthly or material ones, because they last forever. And so... Today, what we're going to be looking at is spiritual knowledge, um, and so the, the idea here is that there's a kind of knowledge of God that only God can provide. And so what we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 1 today, verses 15 through 23, if you want to turn with me there in your Bibles, is this idea of spiritual knowledge. And so the, the main thing I want you guys to see is that as we read Paul's prayer, What we ought to be praying as Christians is that we would receive and grow in the spiritual knowledge of God. And so read with me in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so what Paul is saying here in this first verse is that he, he recognizes two things, two characteristics of these believers, and, and these, these characteristics that Paul is seeing in their lives are the reason that he's praying for them this way. And so those two characteristics are faith and love. And so if you think about the Christian life, the way that it's laid out for us in Scripture is that these two things ought to be characterizing the way that we live our lives. We ought to be having faith in Jesus as our King and Savior. We ought to be having love for those around us that flows out of our love for God. And so um, just kind of as a, as a, as a quick side note, um, whenever these things aren't present, spiritual knowledge isn't present either. 
Whenever faith and love are not present in someone's life, they have no spiritual knowledge of God. Paul recognizes these two things in the lives of those he's writing to, and that's why he's confident he can pray about these things for these believers. So if, if you're a Christian, then your life is characterized by faith in Jesus and love for those around you. And if it's not, particularly if you don't love, then you have no spiritual knowledge of God. Here's what John says in 1 John. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then he says in another verse, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so, Christian, if if you are harboring bitterness and anger in your heart towards someone, then that's much more problematic than you've probably imagined it is in God's eyes. If, if, If you can't get along with people in the church then friends, we have a serious problem because what Paul is saying is that faith in Jesus and love towards the saints, believers is what he's talking about, is what characterizes the Christian life. And, and both you and I know that what Jesus calls us to is a kind of love that extends beyond these walls, right? And so if Jesus is calling us towards a love that is for our neighbors and even our enemies, those who are opposed against us and opposed to God, then if we have problems loving one another, then we've got a really serious problem with God. And and it's not something to take lightly because what John is saying is that if, if you don't have love, then you don't know God. And you're kidding yourself if you think that by coming to church every week and by, and by greeting people in the hallway while you harbor bitterness towards that person for something they did five years ago, you're kidding yourself if you think that you have a, a growing and vital relationship with Christ. Paul recognizes faith in Jesus and love towards others as the characteristics of the Christian life. And so as he's praying for believers... He's going to pray that they grow in their spiritual knowledge because he sees these things present in their lives. And we ought to pray that God makes them present in us. And so Paul's prayer is that you and I would receive and grow in spiritual knowledge. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's praying continually what he's about to tell us. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And so Paul, notice here, he's praying for Christians. He just said his prayer is that we ought to receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We ought to receive the spirit of God. And so Paul is praying that you as a Christian, as a believer and follower of Christ, that you would receive the spirit that I would receive the Spirit. And so he's saying, listen, the, the reception of the Spirit of God, of his wisdom and his revelation about who God is, is not just something that happens when you first trust in Christ. Paul's continual prayer for believers is that they would continue to grow in their understanding of God, and that revelation comes by the Spirit of God. And so We know God because he reveals himself to us spiritually. Spiritual knowledge understands that God must reveal himself to us. And so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? 
Now we have received the Spirit, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so what we talked about last week when we talked about spiritual blessings in Christ is that what Paul has in mind when he uses the word spiritual is that this is something that comes from God. This is something that comes from God's own spirit. And what he says here in 1 Corinthians 2 kind of gives us a good illustration of what it means for God that, it, that it's necessary that God reveals himself, that, that God gives spiritual knowledge, that it can't it can't be acquired. We can't gain it by studying again and again and again and, and on our own power somehow gain the knowledge of God. No, it's something that God gives to us because it comes from the Spirit. And so he says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? And so think about whenever you've had a crazy dream, you know, and, and you wake up and you remember a little bit of it and, and, and you're a little embarrassed about what you dreamt about and you don't even know if you want to share it with anybody. But maybe like your best friend or your spouse, you kind of say, hey, I had the weirdest dream last night. This is what happened. And, and you reveal to that person something that's internal about you, something that has just you've experienced and you have to reveal it to them. Otherwise, they have no way of knowing that, Right? And so it's the same with God. He, he, he's revealing things that are personal about himself to us by his spirit. And so God is, is, is interested in a very intimate relationship with you that trust in Christ. He's interested in revealing more of who he is. He wants you to know him. And this knowledge is spiritual because it comes from his own spirit. It's something that he reveals to us. It's not something that, that we can acquire on our own. It's something that as we read God's word, God's spirit speaks through it and illuminates our understanding so that we understand what God is saying about himself, what God is saying about us, and what God is saying about how we should live in light of those things. God must reveal himself to us. This is how we gain wisdom and revelation. And so if you, if you think about a, a dating relationship that, that someday leads to marriage. Whenever you first meet, um, you, you start to get to know one another and you start to reveal things about yourself, right? And, and if, if, if that kind of revelation isn't present, then the relationship fizzles away and becomes non-existent, right? A dating relationship can't work and proceed towards a marriage relationship if there's no revelation, if there's no openness, if there's no revealing, hey, this is what I, this is what I believe, this is what I, I feel, this is what I think. And, and if you're not gaining a knowledge of a person in that way, if your knowledge is not growing, then you don't have the kind of knowledge that is, is, is formed in relationship. Relationships end whenever there's not continual growth. Or they stagnate and then eventually they end. And so the reason that, that we can grow in a relationship with one another is we continually let people in and we let them know something about ourselves. And this is what Paul is saying when he's saying that you need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's saying that we need God to reveal things about himself. We need to know more of him. We need to know who he is. And our only hope for that is that God himself would show us. 
And so that's his prayer for these believers is that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so he, he says, in addition to receiving the spiritual knowledge from God, from the Spirit, he prays that their hearts might be enlightened, that they might have eyes to see. And so notice there, notice what Paul says, because this is kind of funny language if you, if you look closely at it. He says that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. And last time I checked, my eyes were up here, and, and my heart was down here. And, and, and I didn't really, you know, if I tried to close my eyes, that my heart couldn't actually tell me where I was going, right? And so Paul uses this kind of uh, metaphorical language for us because he knows that what the heart is, is the heart biblically is not this organ that pumps blood in your chest throughout your veins to your body. The heart biblically is the center and core of who you are. So the heart is where you believe. It is where you desire and have feelings and emotions. And the heart is where your words and actions come from biblically. And so what Paul is saying is that he wants the core of who you are, the way that you see the world around you, the way that you see God and the way that you see your relationships with your friends and family members, the way that you see yourself, he wants that to be transformed by God himself. He wants the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you see things differently, so that you see things from God's perspective and not your own. And so Paul is praying that they might receive spiritual knowledge from God, and part of that is an enlightened heart. And so whenever I think about this idea that Paul is getting at here, I think about when, when I was a kid and growing up, my, my dad did not believe in alarm clocks. And so maybe you had a parent like this that... that that thought, when it's time for you to get up, it's time for you to get up. And so my dad did not believe in alarm clocks. He came in, and it would, I would be sleeping, and it would be early in the morning, and he would just flip the lights on and say, get up. And if I did not get up right away, then there was trouble. Um, and so in that moment, when my dad came into the room and flipped the light switch on, the whole environment around me changed. Because when I was sleeping in darkness, I didn't understand what was happening around me because I was asleep. And then when my dad walked in the room and he flipped the lights on and said, get up, he's, he's wanting something to change about what I'm doing, right? And so it's, it's similar. What Paul is praying is that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. And there's this, there's this magnificent and, and great change that happens when God shines light into your life. And so when God is the one who brings this, this enlightenment idea to your heart, it's, it's not this, um, this kind of idea of enlightenment that we have in our culture with New Age spirituality and, you know, you kind of just seek out God. It's that God shows himself to you. God reveals something about himself to you. And that's what brings change at the heart level. God is revealing himself and Paul is praying that God would do this because he knows that for there to be heart change, it must come from an action of God because there's nothing you or I can do to change our own hearts. God is the one who must bring spiritual knowledge. God is the one who must enlighten hearts and give eyes to see. And this makes us see the world differently. It's, it makes us see our relationships differently. It makes us see our jobs differently. And instead of going about our normal routines, 
God enters into what we see as mundane and gives it purpose and meaning because no longer do you just go throughout your nine to five trying to punch the clock and get it over with. Instead, you see the world through the lens of God. Instead, you see those relationships you have with your coworkers through a spiritual lens. You've gained spiritual knowledge of God that leads to further faith in Christ and further love towards those around you. And so Paul is praying that we would grow in these things. And here's, he's going to give us a few things that he, he's kind of unpacking this idea of your, the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. Uh, the first one is certain hope. And so look with me at the next verse here. Here's what Paul says. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And so he starts with certain hope. And so what I mean by certain hope is that for the Christian, hope is not this thing that we wonder about. Hope is something certain because it's founded in God and it's based upon him and he never changes. And so spiritual knowledge understands that we have a certain hope because God is the one who has called us. And so it's dependent upon God. Here's how Peter puts it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And here's what Peter says about this living hope. He says, It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so the kind of hope that that Peter and Paul are talking about is a living hope because it's not based on whether or not something good is going to happen to you. It's based on a person who has already completed the action that God is talking about. It's Biblical hope is not a, a wondering if God is going to do something for you. It's looking back on what God has already done and knowing that he will complete his work in you. Biblical hope is certain. There is no question about it. And so it's, it's kind of like this. Whenever I, whenever I was in high school, I played a lot of basketball. And, and I would spend my summers up at the area recreational center. They called it the ARC because they thought rec center was just, you know, kind of lame and, and boring. I never really understood that, but anyways, I, I played there all day long, and, and there was kind of this environment that, like, you knew your stuff wasn't really safe there, um, and so you kept it within your line of vision at all times while you were playing, and so the kind of the culture was, you know, you would, you would have your valuables tucked away inside your shoe, hopefully far enough down to where, like, somebody walking past can't just see your lunch money and your car keys and things like that laying in your shoe. You tucked it in there real far, and then you kind of set it to the side somewhere that you could see it, but that hopefully people wouldn't notice it much. Because if they did, then your stuff was going to be gone. And so... So I would constantly be watching as I'm trying to play basketball, as I'm shooting and running down the floor trying to get back on defense, I'm looking over and seeing if my stuff is getting stolen. And so I wondered if at the end of my time playing pickup games, if my stuff was still going to be there. And biblical hope is not like that in any way, shape, or form. There's no question about it. You can bank on it. Because biblical hope is more like when you put money in the bank, you know that it's going to be there when you need it. And, and biblical hope is even greater than that. It's, it's kind of like thinking about your retirement. As you, as you invest in retirement, you have this, this waiting and this expectation that one day 
you're going to receive what was, what was deposited. You're going to receive back what you needed at the proper time. And that's what Peter is kind of getting at. He's saying there's a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the proper time. And so the way that Peter and Paul view our hope, the way they view our salvation, is it's not just that moment when you first trust in Christ. It's more than that. What I've said from the beginning of this series is that Ephesians is going to expand your vision of the gospel. Because it's not just about this personal relationship with Jesus that you enter into. It's, it's more than that. It's greater than that. Though it includes that, and that's the beginning of your experience of gospel truth. It's greater than that because it also is the security of your future. It is the security of your eternity. It is what God, not just what God has already done in Christ for you, but what God is doing now and what he's going to complete when he comes back and restores all things and wipes every tear from your eyes. There is no uncertainty about biblical hope. Biblical hope is something you can bank on, and it's more trustworthy than the bank or your retirement account. It's certainly more trustworthy than a shoe in a gym. Biblical hope is something that is certain and lasting, and it's forever. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, where is your hope? Where's our hope? What do we place our hope in? Because oftentimes in life, we are not placing our hope in God. We're not placing our hope in this certain person who has a plan and is accomplishing it, and there's no doubt about it. Instead, we place our hope in things like the amount of money that we make receiving that paycheck, or, or we place our hope in, in, in doctors and medicine and, and what they can do for us to bring healing to our bodies, and, and we place our hope in, in things like alcohol and drugs to provide a temporary relief from the kinds of pain that we experience in this world. We look to things that are earthly in, in hopes that they'll provide what we need when what we need is something heavenly. We need someone that is heavenly and that has power, real power and authority, and that can bring lasting healing that does not end, and that can bring lasting change, and that can provide what we need in Christ in a way that our bank account never could. What we need is a hope that is certain and lasting and eternal, and it's found in Christ. It's found in the one who can bring true joy and relief from pain and suffering. It's found in the one who has a plan and is restoring all things in him. And then we see that there's this aspect of incredible value because we belong to God. And so Paul prays that their hearts might be enlightened, that part of what they need to grow in their spiritual understanding is that they have a certain hope because God is the one who has called you. And then he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so last week we looked at this idea that one of our spiritual blessings in Christ is that we're adopted sons. And so we inherit everything that a son of God inherits because we've, we've, we're not just this, this relationship that God has for a temporary time. No, we've become a permanent heir of his. And so everything that is available in the heavenly places in terms of blessing spiritually is, is ours in Christ. And so what Paul is getting at here is a little bit different than that. Instead of talking about our inheritance, he's talking about God's. And so when he says that, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and then what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's talking about God's view of you. 
That's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That God is inheriting something and inheriting you and I. That you are valuable to God. And, and, and so we have to look back at the first chapter of the Bible. Here's what Moses writes in Genesis. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over, and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male, him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so from the beginning of the Bible, we read about how God has made you and I in his image. We're not valuable because of something that, that we do. We're not valuable because of the job that we have. We're not valuable because of the relationships that we have in our life. We're not valuable because of the money we make or, or the decisions we make in life. We're not valuable because of our appearances. We're not valuable because of anything that we do or could improve on. We're valuable because God has made us. There is value in who you are because you are made by God in his image. And so God has a glorious inheritance in us because those, though we've been made in his image, we've, we've, we've corrupted that image by sinning against him, and God has had a plan to bring about restoration. And so in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, what we read last week, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so it was God's will that he would, he would pursue us and make us his sons, despite the ways that we'd rebelled against him and run away from him, that God would pursue you and I and make us his own again. And then we read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so God loves his people so much that he sends his only son to die in their place. And the reason he does this is so that he would have a people that he would inherit, that they would be his own. And so the reason that we have value, the, the, the place we find esteem in life is not in anything in us, it's in God. It's in who God is and what he's done in pursuing us. Whenever we find, whenever we look at, at this culture, we often see that you know, celebrities and CEOs and, and the popular kids in school are often those who struggle with the greatest problems in life. Statistically, people who are successful struggle more with depression and anxiety than others do. And so we have this kind of environment where the more that you get ahead in life and the more that you gain in an earthly sense, the more likely you are to struggle internally with who you are and what's happening in your life the more likely your life is to be painful and sad and lonely 
the more you succeed in life. And it's this kind of paradoxical thing because what we've done is we've tried to find our value in earthly things rather than our heavenly father. We have tried to find value in our image. And so just in my own life, I've had family members and friends that, that are some of the most beautiful and handsome people in, that I've seen ever. And, and it's those people that struggle with eating disorders and depression. And so the reason is because we're looking to something that cannot provide you the kind of value that you're looking for. You're looking somewhere for self-esteem when you need to be looking to God for your value. Because it's in who God is and it's in what God has done in pursuing you. It's in who God has made you to be that you find your value. It's not in hitting the right weight. It's not in looking the right way. It's not in the attention of other people and the compliments that you receive from others. It's not in any of these things. It's not in your success and your job. It's not in any of those things. Your value is found in God. Paul prays that you might know what is the glorious inheritance of God in you, in you that he has pursued and saved and redeemed. And so then Paul, the last thing that he prays for them is that they would know God's power. That they would know his immeasurable power available to us in Christ. And so here's what he says. He says that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so, Notice, notice three things about this kind of power that Paul says is available in Christ. He says that God's power is immeasurable. He says that God's power is great. And he says that God's power is available to you and I who trust in Christ. That God's power is towards us. It is for us. And so as we experience difficulty in life, the one that we look to has a measurable power that is available for us and that changes how we live our lives. And so when we, we think about the idea of something that's immeasurable, we cannot possibly comprehend it because everything that you and I can think of is measurable. And so even great distances we can measure, right? So we think about the distance from, from our coast to the coast of like England or, or somewhere in Europe, and, and, and we can measure that. It's, you know, there was a, I was reading about a swimmer who, who swam that trip uh, years ago, and it was 3,700 plus miles, and yet we can measure it, though it took him a couple of months to get it done. We can still measure that distance. And, and, and we can measure the distance to the moon, which is 238,900 miles. And then the distance to the sun is even greater, 92.96 million miles from here to the sun. And yet what Paul is saying is that God's power can't be measured like that. That God's power that is available to you and I in Christ is immeasurably great. It is immeasurable, it is great, and it is for you and I. And he, he, he shows us where we can find it, where we can see this power of God. He says, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so where Paul points you to is the resurrection and enthronement of Christ. And so he says, he says this is where you see God's power most clearly. And, and what we read in Romans 6 is that the wages of sin is death, um, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the reason is, is because there was a resurrection. And so when you and I think about the problems that we experience in life, our greatest problem is death, is that at some point this ends. No matter the things that you work hard at now, no matter how healthy you are and how good you eat and how often you exercise, and I just started running again, and for those of you who are trying to struggle through that, I feel your pain. But no matter what you're doing in life, it's going to end. Death is the great problem, that at some point, this life ends. And if, if that's all there is, then we don't have a hope. We don't have a certain hope. But our only certainty, if that's all that there is, is that that's what we're headed for. And what Paul is saying is that the place you see God's immeasurably great power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because what that tells you is that it's not the end. That in Christ you have hope. In Christ, death is not the end for you. In Christ you have eternity. You have eternal life in him. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So this life that's filled with pain and that eventually after you just have these cycles of painful seasons and then a little bit of joy and then pain and suffering again and then it ends, that that is not the end for you if you trust in Christ. That God has eternal joy in him. That God has eternal life available to you in Christ's resurrection and then he says that Christ is the name above all names. And so as Paul is writing to Christians in the area of Ephesus, he has in mind this idea of spiritual warfare. Whenever Paul is writing about how, how Christ is the name above all names, he's, what he's saying is he's writing to a people that believed that they needed to worship all these other kinds of gods and they needed to know the names of these spiritual beings and forces so that they could have blessing in certain areas of their lives. And that if they didn't know their names and if they didn't worship in the right way, if they didn't do the right things, then they were going to experience more pain and more suffering and more trials in those areas of their life. And what Paul is saying is that Christ is the name above all names. There is no other name that even compares. And so you don't need any of these things. What you need is God himself. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other source of, of blessing or prosperity or, or, or care. What you need is God. And, and so he says that what Clinton Arnold said is that Paul assures his readers that there will never be a time when any demonic being, spirit, or so-called god or goddess in any way will threaten or rival the supremacy of Christ. And so Paul is saying that he's trustworthy, that it's in Christ that you see God's immeasurably great power because he's put all things under the feet of Christ. And so last week we talked about how the gospel is, is bigger than your personal relationship with Jesus because what God is doing in Jesus is bringing restoration to not just our relationship with him, but to his creation. And so in Psalm 8, here's what we read. It says, 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. And so that language makes us think back to Genesis, doesn't it? Where God said that Adam and Eve were going to rule over these things that he had created. And then in Genesis 3, we read about how they rebelled against God, and it all, it all was broken, and, and what we're reading about here is that Christ is the one who is the new and better Adam. He brings about a new creation. And so that what the gospel is about is not just that God has provided salvation for you in Christ, but that the broken world that you see around you is being restored by him. Our hope is so much bigger and so much greater than we've imagined. And lastly, Paul wants you to see that the church is how the presence of God fills the earth. So look with me at this last verse here. It says, in 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. And so Jesus is in the position that he's in for our benefit as the church. And, and the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And so what we read in Genesis is that Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because as God's vice regents, as his representatives, his glory was going to expand from Eden and fill the earth. And he was going to do it through them, through his representatives. And then when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus is the one that we see God's presence in. Jesus is the one who is working through his church. And as we study the book of Ephesians together, as we look at what Paul is laying out in this great gospel, what we're going to see is that it's through the church that God does his work. It's you and I. You and I are the plan. And that ought to kind of make us a little bit anxious, right? You know, because if it was anything to do with me or you, then this, we'd be in trouble. But the fact is, is that he says we're looking to Christ the one who has a measurably great power, the one who is seated above all names and authorities, who rules at the right hand of the Father, and who is capable of bringing about this kind of restoration that we're talking about. And the amazing thing is, is that though you and I could never do this, God is doing it through us. That there's a reason that you're here in this place. There's a reason that you are in a community of faith. There is a reason that you are a part of a local church. There is a reason that we don't just do this Christian life separately. The Christian life is not about you having your quiet time in the morning. The Christian life is about living in communities of faith. The Christian life is about believing in and trusting in Jesus together for our salvation and for his restoring plan that he plans to unite all things in him. And so as you and I look at the book of Ephesians, we look at God's story, and we look at God's story for us. And so as we pray and as we sing today, I hope that you'll be praying along with me that we might grow in our spiritual knowledge. 
we might grow in our knowledge of who he is because he has a plan and he's working it out and it's seen in Jesus and it's worked out through you and I as a church. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. God, we thank you that you don't leave us to wonder about who you are, that you've given us a certain hope and that you have helped us to know that we can trust you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might grow us in our knowledge of you. God, that we might know in greater ways how that certain hope impacts our daily lives and that we might know that we find our value not in anything or anyone but you. And God, we pray most of all that you would help us as we think about our mission as a church to make disciples. God, that you would help us to see that you are the one that accomplishes this work and that you've invited us to be a part of it. So Lord, we trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.